Well, thanks, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 19, this uh, very famous Psalm, Psalm 19, and it's going to talk about God's glory and what He has created, specifically the stars and also in giving us His Word. And so stars are fascinating to me in the fact that if you ever get out away from the city where there's not light pollution, you're camping, whatever it is, and you look up at the stars, it is incredible. There's way more there than you think. Right, Because in the DFW area, you see this promise made to Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and you're like, okay, he'll have six kids or whatever. But when you get out, out away from the light pollution, you realize the stars are incredible. And the fact that there are stars that make constellations is incredible. That sailors could find their way at sea based on those constellations, and you could know the times and seasons based on those constellations are absolutely incredible. Now, what I don't like about them is that the constellations look nothing like what they're supposed to be, Okay. Maybe with the exception of the big and the little dipper, but every time I'm looking up, sometimes I've been outside with a friend and I look up at the stars and they'll start acting like they're an astronomer and they're like, look at that one, Zach. That's Ursa Major. That's the big bear. And I'm like, I just see a bunch of dots. They're like, no, no, you just have to connect them. I'm like, okay, let me just connect them in my mind. Still looks nothing like a bear, okay? I'm a terrible artist, but I know you need more than like six dots to make a bear. And I'm like, I just don't see it. They're like, look, there's a paw right here and a head right here. And I look over and they're wearing a Baylor jersey. So everything looks like a bear, right? And so I just realized it doesn't look anything like that. I've never understood how the ancients could look up at the sky, find four stars and be like, behold, ye, a goat. It doesn't look like that, okay? But what this text is gonna do is it is gonna praise God for his glory and seeing his glory in the things that he has made and also in his word. I wanna begin with a quote by the great philosopher Immanuel Kant. When you talk about the most influential philosophers in world history, Kant is in the top four. And he writes this in his work, Critique of Practical Reason, and it's also printed on his tombstone and says this. Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The more often and steadily we reflect upon them the starry heavens above me, and the moral law within me. Now, that's an interesting thing because though Kant is not a Christian in the orthodox sense, that's kind of what this psalm is going to be looking at. Whereas Kant's philosophy focused on metaphysics and epistemology, the starry heavens above us, how things work, reality, how we know it, and also in ethics, the moral law. Specifically, we're going to see that in this text today, that it's going to start with talking about God's glory in the skies and the things that God has created, but it's going to quickly move to talk about God's glory in giving us his word, and then it will end with a note of repentance. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We pray that you'd bless this time. We pray that you would be with us in this weird season. We pray that uh, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We pray that you would uh, have these things change our hearts and affect us. Please protect us from just doing church, from just coming in and hearing a lecture. May this be a chance to engage you through your word because that's how we know you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's start with the title through verse 4a. To the choir master, that's kind of the worship minister, the Tim Hollis of Israel, if you will. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The first thing I want you to see here is what is called an anthropomorphism. Does everybody know what anthropomorphism is? I'm sure you just use that term all the time in common parlance. And anthropomorphism is simply where you talk about something as if it were human, 
though it's not. You especially see this in verses one through two. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. That is an anthropomorphism. The word anthropos means man or human. So an anthropomorphism is where you take something like the stars that are not human, something like the sky that's not human, and you talk about it as if it is human. It's not literally the case. The sky doesn't have a sky mouth or the stars have little star mouths. It's not literally speaking. It's not using English grammar to declare the glory of God. It's using an anthropomorphism. It's saying there's a sense in which they speak and we know what it's like to speak as humans, so it's reading that back onto creation. You see this constantly throughout the Bible and you especially see this when it talks about God. God doesn't literally have a mighty right hand. God doesn't literally change his mind. God doesn't literally regret. God doesn't, you don't literally make God angry as if you give God good and bad days because his happiness is dependent on you. All of that is what is called an anthropomorphism. It's a way to try to understand something that is not human, but the only language we have to use is human, so we get the point. So if that was confusing, let me give you a quick example. So I was running low on fuel, and so I pulled into a gas station, and I started filling up my car with gas, and it took a lot of gas to fill up my car, and I thought to myself, this car was thirsty. Now, is my car literally thirsty in any sense? No, not in any sense, okay? I know what it's like to be low on fuel and to feel thirst as a human, I'm reading that back onto my car. It's not literally true, but you still get the point of what I'm saying. You see this constantly in the Bible. God doesn't literally have a mighty right hand, but you get the idea that he literally is strong, okay? The same thing is being done throughout the Psalm when it talks about God's glory through what he has made in making the heavens. Though they don't have mouths, there is a sense in which they speak. And though they don't have tongues, there is a way in which they sing. We see this especially in verse three. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Meaning, they speak without making a sound. They scream without having lungs and vocal cords. What this first part of Psalm 19 is, is, is simply saying is this, you get to see how awesome and powerful God is through looking at the things God has made, especially the sky, especially the heavens, and it brings humility to broken humans. Nobody stands under a star or a sky full of stars and thinks to themselves, I have a master's degree, right? Nobody stands at the base of Mount Everest and says, I can do 20 push-ups, right? It's humbling to realize the power and might and glory of God that you see through what has been made. This played influentially in the theology of Jonathan Edwards, who was astounded at how much creativity and beauty that God has put into the world that he didn't need to. So when you walk through the woods and you see a flower that no one else will ever see, just you and God, that's the, only, that's the only ones who will ever see that, God still has made the flower beautiful, better than Solomon in all his splendor. Why did God do that? Because God is just great, because God is beautiful, because God is creative, because God is powerful. Edwards used to go on horseback rides with his wife each day, and anything that sparked his affections for God, whether it be a beautiful cloud, a sunset, a beautiful tree, he would take a little piece of paper and pin it to his lapel. And then he would go home and take off that jacket and he would remember and meditate on the beautiful works of God and creation. He's got a famous letter that he wrote called the spider letter. And it's about this little spider. He observes this little spider that lets out a little bit of web and it can fly to another tree. And he says, think about how kind God is. He's taken this bug that everybody hates, this most contemptible of creature, the spider, and not only has God designed it so that it can fly to another tree, the spider, to the tiny degree that it's able, is having fun. 
wee, as it goes from one, one tree to another. And he says, think about the power and the kindness of God through what has been made. And that's what you see here in the verse part of Psalm 19. This is what is known as general revelation, also known as natural theology, okay? There are some things you can know about God just by looking at nature, okay? There's a lot you can't know about God by looking at nature, but you can know some things about God just by looking at nature. We see this also in Romans, Romans 1, 19 through 20. For what can be known, I'm sorry, for what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning people that don't worship God because God has shown it to them. By the way, I'll pause real quick. This text just said there's no such thing as a real atheist, okay? People declare themselves to be atheists, but it's not that they don't have knowledge of God, it's that they suppress it. Atheism is a crutch for people who don't wanna deal with the fact that they're under God's wrath, and instead of running to Christ for forgiveness, they just pretend like God doesn't exist and just hope that those bad feelings will go away. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So in Romans 1 and Psalm 19, this is what it's going to say. There are some things you can know about God by looking at his creation. Again, general revelation. In theology, general revelation refers to things you can know about God apart from the scripture. It's general in that it's available to all people. Someone in an Amazon village that doesn't have a Bible can still see the stars. That's different than special revelation, what God reveals about himself in his word. So right here, though, the text is going to start with general revelation, and it's gonna say these are the things you can know about God just from nature. First, you can know that there is a God, okay? You can know that there is a God just by looking around. You can also know that we have rebelled against this God, even if you didn't have a Bible, That's why every society that has ever arisen in world history has had certain rules of when you could and couldn't kill people. The first time somebody who doesn't know God murders somebody, they still feel bad about it. The first time somebody sleeps with someone who's not their spouse, there's that tinge of guilt. Where does that come from? Because God has written his law on our heart. We have a conscience. We also can know just by looking at creation that the world was created and has not always existed. You understand that the universe cannot be eternal logically, right? Because if the universe has just always existed, we would have never gotten to today. If the universe has always existed, infinity backwards, you would have to cross an infinite number of points, an infinite number of days to get to today. So we can know just by looking at creation that it hasn't always existed. There has to be a being that's outside of space and time, that's not bound by the laws of physics, that would have to bring it into being. And we can also know some of God's attributes. You can look at a mountain and think whatever made that must be really powerful, okay? You can look at fish in the sea and think whatever made that must be brilliant. But here are the things you can't know about God just by looking at the sky. Here are the things you can't know about God just by looking at creation. First of all, you can't know who God is. So you might look at the stars and say, whatever made that is really powerful. But you don't look at the stars and say, I bet whatever made that is Trinitarian, co-equal, co-eternal, Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity. You don't get that just by looking at creation, for that has to be revealed to you in the scriptures. You also don't know anything about the gospel by just looking at creation. Again, you can look at the Grand Canyon and say, whatever made that must be really powerful. But you don't say, I bet whatever made that sent the second person of the Trinity to take on humanity live the life we should have lived, die on a cross and be resurrected so that we might have salvation. That's something that has to be revealed to you. We don't know by looking at creation how we can be forgiven, that it's by grace alone through faith alone. That's something God must reveal to us. We don't know what God's commands are just by looking at creation. 
In fact, you know, for example, the Bible forbids coveting, where you are not satisfied with what God has given you, so you want what belongs to others, coveting. You don't know just from nature that you shouldn't covet, though. If anything, when you look in the jungle, it seems like the animals are very covetous. They really want their stuff. And then lastly, you don't know from just looking at nature how things should be. This is really the Achilles heel of natural theology. In nature, mothers eat their young. Should you then say, oh, that's how things should be and we should eat our young? No, maybe if you're a new mother, it feels that way right now, but you'll get through it. You'll get through it. In nature, male lions rape female lions. You can't say that just because this happens in nature, therefore it should happen. Therefore, we should emulate it. Animals in nature commit homosexual acts. That doesn't mean that that is natural today. We live post-Genesis 3. We live, in an un, we live in a broken world. We live in an unnatural world. You can see that animals in nature, a monkey will take a baby monkey that doesn't belong to it and throw it down out of the trees so that it dies. You can't look out and say, because, the wor- because nature is the way that it is, because the world is the way that it is, it ought to be that way. Because everything is broken today. Post-Genesis 3, what's natural is no longer natural. Everything in the world is broken, not just the relationship between man and God, but the ground bears thorns and thistles. So what this text is going to do is it's gonna simply, simply say this. There are things we can know about God just from what he's created. But the most important things that we can know about God, we can't see just by looking at creation. We have to look at God's word. The most important truths in the universe are not gotten to through human reason nor through scientific exploration. They must be revealed to man by God. Verses 4b through 6. So we've been looking at the sky. Now it's going to zoom in on something in the sky, specifically the sun. Let's look at this. Verse 4b through 6. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's almost like the sun's excited. The sun gets up every morning and he's yelling at everybody. It's like, it's time. It's my time. And he runs across the sky. It's kind of the idea. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, let me, let me explain what a lot of critics misunderstand when the Bible talks about the sun moving or the sun rising. I'll, I'll give you a little illustration, though. I have a three-year-old daughter named Isla, who's adorable, and she was watching something on TV, and I was in the kitchen, and she said, Daddy, that's so funny. That cow is sitting on a pig. And I thought, that's a strange thing to say. I'm gonna see what she's watching. We don't just let our kids watch whatever, by the way. This wasn't, she wasn't just surfing through YouTube. So I walk in there and I say, honey, that's not a pig, that's an udder. And she says, what's an udder? And I was like, well, I hate that I even brought this up. Um, it's where baby cows get milk. Hey, let's talk about something else, right? And she was just, she was utterly confused. So with my daughter, She was reading this weird category that she didn't have a place in her mind to put it. A lot of critics do that when it comes to these kind of places in the Bible. They say, Zach, the Bible is so unscientific. We know that the tent doesn't have a, or we know that the sun doesn't have a tent. We know that the sun doesn't literally move from the east to the west. And my response to that is, you have to allow the Bible to speak normally. In this text, the author is not trying to talk about the difference between a Copernican or a, you know, a Ptolemaic solar system with which does the earth go around the sun or the sun go around the earth. He doesn't care about that. That's not his point at all. He's using figurative language to simply say, look at God's glory through what he's created. You have this ball of fire that moves from one end of the sky to the other end and heats up the whole earth every single day. That's incredible. That's all he's trying to do. 
Allow the Bible to use normal speech. If I'm walking on the beach with my wife and there's a sunset and I say, hey, honey, look at that beautiful sunset. I know that the sun doesn't literally set, but it's not romantic to say, hey, honey, look at how a shadow is slowly cast over the earth as it rotates slowly and we cannot see the sun anymore. That doesn't get me a kiss, right? So I use the phrase sunset. That's okay. Allow the Bible to do that. It's not trying to talk about how the sun moves. It's talking about from our perspective. If my wife gets a haircut, I don't say, hey, those strings of dead skin cells and protein growing out of your head look really great. I say, your haircut looks great because I'm not trying to be that scientific. So allow the Bible to do the same thing. The idea here is simply that we don't worship creation. We worship the God who made these incredible things. Not only do we see God's glory when we look up at the sky, daytime or night, but we see the power of God in creating the sun. Let me give you some facts that might blow you away. How big is the sun? One million earths could fit inside the sun. It accounts for 99.86 of the mass in our solar system. Think about that. If you've ever been driving through Texas and you're like, this drive is taking forever. Texas is a big state. It is a big state. Amen. It's the biggest state. Alaska doesn't count. Alaska is just the Texas of Canada. Okay? So Texas is the biggest state. That's one state in one country on one planet and you could fit a million earths within the sun. A million. It's incredible. How hot is it? The core of the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. So I don't know how hot your oven gets up to in your kitchen. Probably not 27 million degrees, okay? That's the core of the sun. The sun is just one of approximately 100 billion stars just in the Milky Way, not in all the other galaxies in the universe, 100 billion. The, star, the sun is a tiny star compared to other ones, just one of maybe 100 billion just in the Milky Way. It's 93 million miles from Earth, so far away that it takes light eight minutes to get to Earth. The solar winds produced by the sun are so fast that they go 279 miles per, not hour, second. 279 miles a second. Again, I don't know what your 40-yard dash time was. I don't know what your 100-yard dash time was. 279 miles per second. And scientists estimate that the sun is 4.6 billion years old. Absolutely incredible. By the way, if that last point offended you, the Bible doesn't tell us how old the universe is. Okay, so don't hold strong views on things the Bible doesn't say explicitly. The point of all of this is to simply say, when you realize that God has made this thing that a million earths could fit in, and the earth is already pretty big, and he's made 100 billion of those in this galaxy, and then there are, we don't know how many galaxies, billions and billions and billions and billions. It makes you fall on your face and remember, I am not God. God is powerful. God can be trusted. I can't even, you know, not trip over my own feet. God makes billions of galaxies that no one will ever see other than God and they just turn and burn for the glory of God. It is meant to be absolutely overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. The text is now gonna shift in verses seven through nine. So we've looked up at the sky, we've zoomed in on a star, but now we're gonna look down. We're gonna look down at God's word. We've moved from natural theology, we've moved from uh, general revelation, now the text is gonna move to specific revelation, uh, special revelation. Verses seven through nine. The law of the Lord, meaning Yahweh, that's the divine name that's used in Hebrew there. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
The psalmist started with general revelation and now we will move to special revelation. Now, let me explain how I've heard a lot of pastors mispreach Psalm 19. I've actually heard several different pastors preach Psalm 19 and most of them, when they get to this part, they break out all these different definitions. They'll say, here's the law of the Lord and it's perfect. You know, here's the fear of the Lord and it's clean or whatever it is and they'll break it all apart, okay? That is not how this text is meant to be read. We know that for two reasons. The first one is that these terms can be used interchangeably and they're used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament. It's not just that God's law is perfect, but that his precepts are not. His precepts are also perfect, okay? Additionally, and this one's more important, that's not the way Hebrew parallelism works. The defining feature of Hebrew poetry is what is called parallelism. It's where you say the same thing and just use different words to do it. So these are not all different things. You don't cut God's word up into like six different parts or something like that. That's not how parallelism works. Verses seven through nine are simply saying one thing. Ready? God's word is perfect and great. That's all it's saying. God's word is perfect and great. That's what that section does. We do this a lot for some reason in theology. When the Bible says to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, those aren't meant to be cut up. It's not like I love God with all my strength, which means I just crush it in the gym for Jesus. And I love God with all my mind, which means I just have to study really hard for Jesus. Yes, do things well for Jesus, but the whole point is saying, love God with everything you have. It's not meant to cut up heart, mind, soul, and strength. The same thing happens with the spiritual armor mentioned in Ephesians 5. A lot of Christians treat those like they're different things. They're not different things. They're all just simply trusting Christ. They're all just simply the gospel. That's why your feet are shod with the gospel. And that's why you have a blessed plate of righteousness. Your righteousness comes from the gospel. And it's why you lift up a shield of faith. What is that faith in? Christ, the gospel. You have a helmet of salvation. There's only one piece of spiritual armor, the gospel, okay? The same thing is happening here in Psalm 19. Verses seven through nine are not talking about all these different things. It's trying to say whatever is in God's word, whether it is a command he gives, whether it is instructions he gives on fearing him, all of that is perfect and great. All of that is perfect and great. So here's what I wanna do. If I say to you, a bunch of Christians in Texas that are evangelicals, do you believe God's word is perfect? Every one of you, if you're a Christian and a Protestant and reformed, you'll say yes. But what I wanna do is I wanna mention some things about scripture to show you, you might not think it's as perfect as you should think it is, okay? So I wanna talk about some attributes of scripture so that we can be corrected. The point of verses seven through nine is that God's word is perfect. Let me show you that you may or may not fully believe that. So I'm gonna repeat some of what I say oftentimes in our membership class as well. But let me go through a few things. First of all, do you believe the Bible, like verses seven through nine says, is absolutely authoritative, that it is God's word? A lot of Christians act like they can have this relationship with God, but the Bible's just this helpful supplement. You don't have a relationship with God that actually is vibrant and growing apart from the Bible. Your God is mute if you're not reading the scriptures. The Bible is how God talks to you. We talk to God in prayer. He talks to us in his word, okay? So do you believe that this is God's very word? To directly disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to directly disbelieve or disobey God himself. That's the authority of scripture. Scripture is also necessary that we've seen that some things you can know about God from nature, but the most important things have to be revealed to you in the Bible, Or as it's often been said, there's enough knowledge of God in creation to damn you, but not enough knowledge of God in creation to save you. For that, you need to know the gospel and God's word. Do you believe in the inerrancy of scripture? We'll give you a definition of inerrancy. 
When rightly interpreted, the Bible in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Every proposition the Bible asserts is true and without any mixture of error. The Bible is true not just in relation to matters of faith, but in regards to every topic on which it speaks. Do you believe that? A lot of times if I'm talking to someone who's more skeptical and they say, there's all these contradictions in the Bible, all we literally have to do is look at the text they're concerned about, and usually they're just not interpreting it correctly, okay? So yes, the Bible would be full of errors if you misinterpret it. We're saying when it's interpreted correctly, in its correct genre, using a historical grammatical method, the Bible will not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Do you believe in the clarity of Scripture? Let me say this one. The clarity of Scripture, also called the perspicuity of Scripture, is that God has made His Word clear. So if you're someone who thinks, Zach, I don't have a PhD in theology, I'm just a a simple person, I feel like I can't understand the Bible, let me point your attention to the end of verse 7. It says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God has not written his word to only be interpreted by those who have PhDs in Hebrew exegesis. He's written his word to be interpreted by the average person. That's why you're to teach it to your kids. They can understand it to a degree, and you can understand it. The problem is not that God's word is confusing. The problem is with us. The problem is that we come to God's word, one, not knowing it well enough so that the other parts don't make sense, but two, we come to it sinful and with presuppositions, and instead of laying those down, we read those onto the Bible, and that's why it's confusing. God has made his word where it can be understood by the average person and especially the parts that you need to know God and to be saved. He's especially made those clear. And then lastly, I wanna mention this because I think this is the place in evangelicalism where we have just ignored verses seven through nine. It's on the topic of the sufficiency of scripture. Again, the whole point of verses seven through nine is that God's word is perfect. And if it's perfect, you don't get to add to it or take away from it. But what we've started doing in a lot of churches in evangelicalism is we've started denying the sufficiency of Scripture. So I want to mention a few things about this. First, let me give you a passage from 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Look at this next part. That the man of God might be complete, there's one, equipped for every good work, there's two. So the Bible just said it twice, that if you have the Bible, you are complete and equipped for every good work that God calls you to do, period. That's the idea of sufficiency. So now we're gonna have a little fun and we're gonna take a little vote and we're gonna do some things, okay? Let me give you a definition of the sufficiency of scripture as clearly as I can. The sufficiency of scripture means that God has put everything that he requires you to know and requires you to do in his word. There is nothing that God requires you to believe or requires you to do that is not in the scriptures, Okay, amen? Let's take, a little, let's take a little pop quiz. Is the Bible sufficient on the issue of how to perform heart surgery? If you think yes, raise your hand. If you think no, raise your hand. Okay? Is the Bible sufficient on the issue of how to change the oil in your car? If you think yes, raise your hand. If you think no, raise your hand. Okay. For all the people that voted no, let me give you my definition. Again, I was very clear that sufficiency means that God has put in his word everything he requires you to know and requires you to do. It's not that you can practically fix somebody's heart. If you try to perform heart surgery and you're not a doctor and you're just like looking in the Bible, you're gonna kill that person. If you try to perform an oil change on your car and you're just looking at the Bible, you will not be able to do that. That's not the definition of sufficiency. 
The definition of sufficiency is that God has put everything he requires you to know and requires you to do in his word. He doesn't require you to know anything about heart surgery. Yeah, try to keep them alive. Don't overcharge them and be greedy. He doesn't require you to know anything about changing the oil on your car. Yeah, don't curse when you scrape your knuckles. But other than that, he hasn't given us all this other information. Do you know why? Because that's not the definition of sufficiency. The definition of sufficiency is that God doesn't, what God requires humanity to know and do is in his word. If you simply believed all the Bible and obeyed all the Bible, you would be perfect. Now you can't because of sin, but the problem then is because we're lacking not God's word. You see, what happens is we have a tendency to think God's Bible is great, but we just don't really think it's sufficient. We think that it's helpful, but really we need all this extra stuff out there to really grow in holiness. So let me give you some examples to show that maybe you don't believe in sufficiency as much as you should. A woman claims that a pastor cannot teach about male leadership to women because the pastor is male and he doesn't know what it's like to be a woman. Is she right? Yes or no? No, because God's word is an equal opportunity hater. God's word stands over all of humanity and rebukes all of us so that we, are, we, we might run to Christ. The person who says, you can't talk to me about being a woman because you're a man is denying sufficiency. They're saying, what you actually need is the Bible plus my experience of being a woman. It's not sufficient. You need this other thing. I'll give you another example. A man convicted of child pornography comes to faith in prison. The man asked to speak to a pastor for counseling, but the pastor says that he's not equipped to counsel the man through that unique struggle and that that man should only seek professional counseling instead. Is that pastor right? No. If you have the Holy Spirit and you have the Holy Bible, you have everything you need to counsel someone through sin, regardless of how strange or deplorable the sin is. You see that pastor, if he were to say that he couldn't counsel the man, denies the sufficiency of scripture. He says, in addition to the Bible, I need all this extra specialized training to deal with this guy. Now, we're not saying that training's not helpful. Counselors can be helpful, many of whom are not, but counselors can be helpful. But as far as what's required, it's only the scriptures. A church says that, if, and you'll, you, you've probably heard this a lot in 2020, a church says that if you're of a particular race, you cannot properly interpret the Bible because you've been blinded by your culture, privilege, wealth, or status. Is that church right? No. All you need, again, is the scripture because it's sufficient. Jesus, who happens to be neither white nor black, has a lot to say on the race issue, okay? A man's wife cheats on him and abandons him through divorce, meaning it's not his fault. A church tells the man that he is not allowed to date for a year. The man begins dating after six months and the church says he is in sin. Is he indeed in sin? No. When the Bible commands you to submit to elders, and I'm saying this as an elder, when the Bible commands you to submit to elders, it assumes that they're giving you Bible. If they are misinterpreting the Bible or they're adding to the Bible, you do not have to do what they're saying, okay? Now, they can give you wisdom. That guy might say, you know what? I just got out of a big relationship. Maybe I should wait a few months before dating. That's fine. But as far as the elders, we, our authority only extends insofar as the Bible, okay? If you're just going to blindly follow elders, then be Roman Catholic. At least follow a guy that's got the, you know, equivalent, equivalent education of three doctorates and speaks multiple languages if you're just going to blindly follow humans. No, the Bible is sufficient. Bob enjoys smoking tobacco and a pipe from time to time. He is not addicted to it, and he's not doing it so much that it's detrimental to his health. A friend, Ted, Ted's the worst, Right? Ted's the guy that makes you late to the party because you got to pick up his asthma medicine. That's kind of who Ted is. A friend, Ted, tells him that smoking is a sin. Is Ted correct? No, okay? Now, if that guy is smoking eight packs a day and committing suicide through smoking, then it could be a sin. But per se, in and of itself, 
It's not. We don't have a right to add commands to Scripture. And then my favorite one that I always give that grosses everybody out in the membership class is this one. An 80-year-old Christian man who has never been married wants to marry an 18-year-old Christian woman who has never been married. The elders of a local church tell him that they should not get married because there is such a large age difference. After considering their advice, is the man free to marry her or is he bound to obey the elders on this issue? (laughs) We don't like this one. This one makes us uncomfortable, right? There's nothing biblically. Again, if they're both Christians, that's why I said they were Christians. Neither of them have been married, so you don't get into the divorce issue. And I made him 80 and her 18, so you don't get into the underage issue. There is nothing unbiblical about them getting married, but it's gross, right? And because of that, what we do is we read commands onto the scripture. We say, well, surely I'll find some text that's not really about that to probably show that that's sin because it just makes me uncomfortable. You see, we don't really believe in the sufficiency of scripture. We want, we want it to say more than it does. We want it to clarify more than it does. We, we don't like some of its commands, but other places we want there to be more commands like the Pharisees. We wanna build fences around the law. Now, obviously, should this couple consider the advice of the elders? Yes, that marriage probably will not be doing well. Additionally, do you have to do the research to make sure she's not a gold digger or he's not some sort of pervert? Yes, okay? If you've ever wondered what uh, pastors do during the week, we mainly just try to keep 80-year-olds and 18-year-olds from getting married. That's mainly, that's most of our day. But the point is, is that that's what we're talking, when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, all we're saying, we're not saying there's not helpful information outside the Bible. There are facts outside the Bible. Two plus two is four. My name is Zach. The Cowboys aren't having a great season. That's all outside the Bible. It's all true. What God requires us to know and requires us to do is the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, okay? So the application we take from verses seven through nine is simply this, read the Bible, study the Bible, love the Bible. But Zach, I don't know how. Okay, I'm gonna get you, give you some stuff to get started. First of all, get a translation that is easy to read, okay? We recommend here at Parkway using the ESV because it is very literal, but also easier to read. And we recommend that you get the ESV study Bible. Why? Because it has notes at the bottom of the pages written by guys who are both scholars and Christians. So they have both the academic background and the spiritual background to help you understand what's happening. Don't start in the Old Testament. That is a huge critical flaw. According to the New Testament, you should start in the New Testament. That when you read the law, a veil remains over your eyes. That that veil is only taken away in Christ. There's a sense in which you should read the Bible backwards. So read the New Testament first. Pick one of the Gospels. I don't care. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Read that. Then read Acts through Revelation. Then you can go back and start reading the Old Testament because the Old Testament won't make sense until you realize that it's all about Jesus. Okay? Until you realize it's all about Jesus. Well, Zach, how much do I have to read? I don't care, however much you want. Let's start small. Let's start with one chapter a day. Well, Zach, a chapter? Well, when we say chapter in the New Testament, we don't mean like a chapter in a novel that's 20 pages. Most chapters in the New Testament are three paragraphs, three to four paragraphs. It'll take you all of five minutes. Well, Zach, I don't even have five minutes. Then you can audiobook it in your car for free, okay? So, The Bible is one of those things where you say, Zach, when I read it, I don't understand it. You'll understand it the more you read it. First time you read the Constitution, there's a lot that doesn't make sense. But if you go back and read the Founding Fathers and other documents, it starts to make sense. The same thing is true with the Bible. Just be faithful to the process. Trust the process and you will find yourself loving and knowing God's word more and more. Verses 10 through 11. More to be desired, talking about God's word, the truths of his word, his law. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. In verses 10 through 11, we learn three things more about God's word. First, 
it is better than the things that you think are the best things, okay? It is better than the thing. That's why it talks about better than fine gold or the drippings of the honeycomb, one of the only sweet things that they could eat in the ancient world, that God's word is better than the things that you think are the best things. Let me say it this way. Let's say you didn't have a Bible and I offered you a Bible or a billion dollars. Do you hesitate? Do you hesitate to choose Bible? Of course you do. I would choose the billion dollars and just hope somebody could just tell me about the Bible later. The things we think, are, we, we think this is better. A billion dollars would make me happier than knowing the God who not only is the one who actually brings joy, but also gives me eternal life. You see, we don't really think that God's word is better than the best things. We think it's great, we should like it because we're Christians, but really, I'd rather have the billion dollars. And so what's ironic is that billion dollars, we choose that because we think it'll make us happy. Not only does it not make us happy, God's word tells us how to be happy, and it contains the gospel, which is how we have eternal happiness. So it's saying it is, the best, it is better than fine gold, it is better than sweet things, the things in life you like the most, God's word is better. You say, well, Zach, I don't feel like I believe that. That's okay. It's true regardless of whether or not you believe it. This text is not saying you should always feel like God's word is better. It's saying it's actually better. It's actually better. Second thing, the Bible warns us. Notice this phrase, by them your servant is warned. God knows how life works better than us. Do you know why? Because he made everything, right? He knows how the universe works best because he's the one that created the universe. So God has put these commands and these things in his word so that we might have life and have it abundantly. If you neglect what God's word says about how life works best, you will have to pay the stupid tax. That's what's going to happen, okay? Let me, let, me, let me say it this way. Let me get on a soapbox because I think, it, hear what I'm about to say because this could be revolutionary for you. We feel like there are all these fun things out there in the world and that God is like this cosmic killjoy, this cosmic buzzkill who doesn't want us to have fun. But there's a trade-off. If we'll not have fun for the few years down here we're on earth, then we get eternal life. That's how most of us view God's commands. There's all this fun stuff out there. God just doesn't want us to have fun, but I gotta be a good boy so I can go to heaven. Okay? God's commands are not there to restrict your joy. God's commands are there to maximize your joy. Because God knows how life works better than anyone, he is the one who has given us these commands so that our lives might have more joy, not less of it. Let me give you an example. When we turn on the stove, it glows with this seductive, bright orange that to my two little kids, they just wanna touch the stove, okay? As soon as you turn it on, they're like, is the stove hot? I'm like, why are you asking about this? Just leave it alone. They want to touch the stove. It's glowing, it's beautiful, they just want to touch it. And I've given them this command, do not touch the stove. Now from their perspective, I'm keeping them from fun. They know that when they touch this stove, that they will be like dad, knowing good and evil. And when they touch this stove, they will have all this joy. They will have all this fun. Dad is just being mean because he won't let me touch the stove. Now, do I give them the command not to, to touch the stove because I don't want them to have fun or because I do want them to have fun? I do want them to have fun. You know what's not fun? Going to the hospital with third degree burns on your hands. What is fun is not touching the stove. So they misunderstand. They think my command is to keep them from joy, but look at me. My command is to maximize their joy. All of my commands are to make their life better so that they might have joy. That is how all of God's commands work. Every command God has given you, including the ones you most hate, are there actually to give you the highest amount of joy. 
God's not the one trying to steal your joy, you are. You're the one trying to steal your joy. God is the one who's trying to maximize your joy. That's what it talks about, but by them your servant is warned. You don't have to pay the stupid tax when you follow this the way God has ordained, the way God has set up the world. Also notice this, in keeping them there is great reward, okay? In keeping them there's great reward. That means three things. First of all, there's just a general reward in knowing God and knowing his word. That's a reward in and of itself. Second of all, God does also bless those who walk in obedience, okay? I'm not going prosperity gospel. You can walk in obedience and you can be martyred, okay? Things will go, if you're a Christian, you will get sick. People will be awful to you. Bad things will happen, okay? But it is also the case that God rewards those who keep his word. To quote one pastor, it just seems like Christians get lucky in life. It just seems like their marriage works a little better. Their kids work out a little better. The way they conduct business works out a little bit better that there is blessing. And then the third thing, there's ultimate blessing. For those who know Christ, this world is as close to hell as you ever get. For those that know Christ, there's only eternal bliss, worshiping the triune God forever and ever. Verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, I love how this psalm ends. Do you know why? Because it goes from seeing God's glory by looking up to seeing God's glory by looking down at his word. And the very next step is conviction. The very next step is this reminder that we cannot keep God's word, okay? When you read the Bible, it should make you angry. It should offend you because it is perfect and you and I are not. We are stained with sin. And so notice that as David meditates and thinks about God's word, the very next thing he thinks about is how often we fail. How often we fail. By the way, that's the purpose of God's law according to the New Testament. God has not given you his word so that you might just crush all the ethical commands and earn your way to heaven. You can't earn your way to heaven. God has given you a perfect law so that you might fail, so that you might run to Jesus. God has given us impossible commands. Let me give you a quote from Martin Luther. For if man has lost his freedom and is forced to serve sin and cannot will good, what conclusion can more justly be drawn concerning him than that he sins and wills evil necessarily? Does it follow from the command, turn ye, that therefore you can turn? Does it follow from the command, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, that therefore you can love with all of your heart? And the answer to those is no. Just because God has commanded something in scripture, that's not there so that you can do it. It's there to crush you, show you you can't do it so that you run to Christ. So as soon as you see the perfection and the holiness of God's word, the next thing it does is it brings conviction. It lets us see all the places that we have fallen short. Look at verses 12 through 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. A few things here. At the end of the day, when you repent, and I would encourage you to repent each day when you pray, find a time to do some repentance. Do you have to name all of your sins in particular, okay? No, you don't have to. I would encourage you to mention the ones that, you, that are major ones that you can think of. Dear God, forgive me today for walking in pride. Forgive me today for being lustful. Forgive me today for flipping someone off in traffic. Whatever your thing is, right? Whatever your thing is. But you can't literally think of all the sins you've committed that day because you're sinning all the time. Like the command to be ye perfect or the command to do nothing out of selfish ambition or the fact that James says we cannot control our mouths. We're sinning a bunch, So it's okay to also say, and God, if I've committed any other sins, would you forgive me of those? That's what David's saying. Forgive me of my hidden faults. Forgive me of my big ones that I know about, 
but also forgive me of the ones that I didn't even realize that I did. But notice David also does something we usually miss in repentance. He asks for protection from future sins. Let me not fall into presumptuous sins. That doesn't mean the sin of presumption like the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you can't know that you're saved. The idea is don't let me walk in these sins that I know are wrong. Don't let them have dominion over me, okay? Don't let me give myself over to these knowing, habitual, continual sins. Don't let me do this. Don't let me sin with a high hand. This is, the, this is David's version of lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. That's kind of what he's saying here. And then I'll be blameless. Doesn't mean that he doesn't sin. The idea is because he's repentant and he's not walking in this hard-hearted sin, he is seen as blameless. And then verse 14 is just a prayer of praise that God will accept the psalmist worship, okay? So let me summarize all of that. That was a bunch of information. We talked about the sun, we talked about udders, talked about a bunch of stuff. Let me just summarize this psalm for you. The New English translation of the Bible has a great summary of this psalm. It says this, the psalmist praises God for his self-revelation in the heavens and in the Mosaic law. The psalmist concludes with a prayer asking the Lord to keep him from sinning and to approve of his thoughts and words. Now, this sermon can sound somewhat legalistic. It could sound like I just got up here and said, you don't do a good enough job of seeing God's glory in creation and you don't do a good enough job of reading your Bible. You really don't believe the Bible, read the Bible more, okay? And if you feel that condemnation and you go home and you try to read the Bible out of that heart of condemnation, you'll read it less. After all, why would you want to know about a God that's mad at you? So here's what you need to understand from this psalm. We have all failed at this, including David, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel. As he gets to the end of his psalm, he's convicted. He has to repent. We have all failed to give God glory. We have all failed to see how amazing God is through the things he has made. We have all failed to keep God's law. And so what you need to hear is a message of grace. This text is written for sinners like David who know that they need mercy. This text is written for sinners like you and I who know that we need mercy. You need to see the gospel in this, that God's word is there to crush us, but the story doesn't end with the crushing. The story ends with someone else who was crushed on your behalf. The story ends with somebody else who was made a curse by being nailed to a tree so that you're not under the curse of God. You see, this text is supposed to be convicting. None of us loves God like we should. None of us reads the Bible like we should. None of us sees all the brilliance of God in creation like we should. And yet, we're loved and we're forgiven and we're accepted because this God, who is so amazing to make the Son, who is so kind to reveal himself in the Scriptures, he didn't have to do that. It could have been like the pagan nations in the Old Testament that don't know who their gods are. Instead, our one triune God has made himself known and given us mercy and grace. The Bible is not for little sinners. The Bible's for big sinners. Jesus has come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's what this text reminds us of. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to take communion. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit, and we just confess that we need help, that we are broken and we are hurting. We do not really trust your word like we should or else we wouldn't be anxious. We do not really trust your word like we should or else we wouldn't follow the fleeting pleasures of this life. At the end of the day, we think that we will have more fun by doing things our way than your way. And I confess that I think that. That at the end of the day, I think I would be a better God than you. Would you forgive us? Would you forgive me? We're just these ignorant creatures made out of the dirt and you've given us so much and yet we try to usurp your throne all the time. Would you forgive us? We thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. We pray that this worship might be honoring to you, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing unto you, our rock and our redeemer. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen.